Pastor Paul Tripp, who uh, is a, a speaker and writer that I listen to sometimes, uh, last year preached an Advent sermon at the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, I listened to this sermon and, and it started messing with me. It started making me really think. And so he preached on this text from Isaiah 59. And so this is kind of my own take on some of the things he led me to think about there. Last week I made an argument that our culture has taken Christmas and made it something that it's not, something that it shouldn't be. And I presented Advent as a possible way to deal with this, to really live into this season leading up to Christmas. And now as we approach Christmas in these sermons, I'm going to continue to unpack that a little bit. What does it mean for us to take back Christmas from our culture And so we're in Isaiah 59, and I'm going to be reading parts and just preaching right through the text so you can follow along. Starting in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Let's stop, because you've got to understand this to understand the rest of the passage. The people of Israel by this time are in exile. They have been taken from their land to another land, and um, they've been there for now for a little while, and things are not going well. And there are accusations going against God. God, if you're so powerful, if you care about us so much, how could this happen? The Lord's hand is not shortened. Maybe God's arms are short. You can kind of get the image, right, of God having short little arms. Maybe God's arms are short so that God is not strong enough to deal with this situation or we're out of God's reach. He can't quite reach us. It's kind of a goofy image, you know, these short little arms of God. But that's the image. God's not strong enough to reach us or to help us. He can't reach us. We're outside of his reach. Or maybe his ear is dull. You ever had to try, have, tried to have a conversation with somebody who can't hear? And you get that, huh? What? Maybe God is like that. Maybe his ear is dull. He just doesn't hear. He just doesn't understand that we're going through this. These are the accusations that God makes, that the people make against God. But Isaiah is saying, no, that's not the situation. This is not God's fault. And he continues in verse 2. But your iniquities have made separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You think this is God's problem. God's not strong enough or God can't hear you. But, but Israel, you're the problem. You have created this separation by your actions. Your sins have hidden your face. Because you don't want to turn your face to God because of the things you've done. You hide your face. And you wonder why God can't see you. Or God's not responding to what you say with your face hidden. How bad is it? Well, Isaiah turns around here and lays into the people. So here we go, verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. So, so far... The, the, the blood is on your hands. The blood of iniquity is on your hands for the things that you have done. For your tongue has said some nasty things. Your hands have done some nasty things. 
You don't, you don't use the law appropriately. You use the law to control others. Verse 5, they hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. These are talking about the plans that people make to, to manipulate and to control. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity. And deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The peace, the the way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. In this passage, Isaiah uses three words throughout the text to describe Israel's problem, their separation from God. One is the word iniquity. Iniquity is moral uncleanness. In my purposes, my thoughts, my intentions. It's the idea that I go to do something that's right, but even when I go to do something that's right, there's some kind of poison. There's something that that is wrong with it. It's somehow tainted. I try to do good stuff, but even then, I, I want people to thank me and praise me. So even good stuff is not as good because I I taint it. That's iniquity. Transgression is just high-handed rebellion. That's when you know what you're not supposed to do and you do it anyway. Or you just don't care in the moment. And so, you know, you yell at your wife. You know that you're not supposed to yell at your wife. But in the moment, you're so mad, you just don't care. You engage in a behavior. You nag, you're angry, whatever it is. And you know you're not supposed to be like that, but you're so angry that you don't care whether it's right or wrong. That's just what you're going to do. That's a transgression. Now, maybe you don't have a transgression that's like killing someone. But we all have those moments where we throw what we know we're supposed to do to the wind and we do something else because that's how we feel in the moment. The other word that, that gets used later doesn't get used in this, this section, but later we'll hear the word sin. Sin is actually an archery term. It's a term that means missing the mark. So sin is the amount that you get away from your goal, the target, the aim. So sin is that um, you get close, but you're not what you're supposed to be. You don't live up to who you could be. There are good things that you leave undone. You fall short of what God has for you. That's sin. You have these things in your life, as do I, as did the Israelites. Maybe not a glaring thing. That would end up end you up in jail. But we all have these things where we know we're not who we're supposed to be. But as the text continues, I want you to notice a big change here. As we go into verse 9, we're going to change speaker. So while it's been saying they have done this and they have not done that. Now it's going to move to the, to the third person. Now it's going, to say, it's going to say we. First person plural. It's going to say we. It's going to say us. So we're moving now to a response to God's accusation. So everybody following along so far? The people have accused God of having short arms and not being able to hear them. God has turned around and and through the prophet Isaiah accused them back. No, 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 you're the problem. Now hear the response that Isaiah writes for the people. Therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. And for brightness and we walk in gloom. Have you ever felt that? 
You hope that something's going to turn up, that's going to be light, that's going to be better, that's going to be light at the end of the tunnel. But all you get is darkness and gloom. We grope for the wall like the blinds. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. See, the problem we have is that when we accuse God of not being able to take care of us, we accuse God of having short arms or not being able to hear us because He's the problem, what we end up doing is not wanting to go to God with our problems. Makes sense, right? If I don't trust somebody, I'm not going to go to them for help. So if I start questioning God as the people of Israel are, then then I'm not going to go to God when I need help. I'm going to go to other places. But it doesn't work. Hope, happiness, and satisfaction can't be found in these other things. I, I love the image that Isaiah gives us. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and there's no lights on? And so you're like stumbling to find or been in a new place where you don't know where the lights are. And so you're feeling along the walls just trying to get some grasp of where you are and maybe where the light switch is. Isaiah says that's us. That's us in our sin. We, we try all kinds of things. We scramble and we, and we fall because we're blinded. We get so confused What we want is our problems to be something outside of ourselves. Just like Israel. God must be the problem. We want to be the good guy and we want the problem not to be us. But the problem is we are the problem. It's like people who say that they're in a bad marriage. As if I can be in a bad marriage, but I'm not part of the problem. Like the marriage is bad, but I'm okay. No, if I'm in a bad marriage, I'm part of that marriage. That means I'm part of the problem. We do this all the time. We we make things abstract so we don't have to talk about how really people are the problem. Have you ever heard of a dangerous neighborhood or street crime? I have news for you. A street has never committed a crime ever. And a neighborhood has never been bad to you. People do those things. We talk about a corrupt government as if the institution is the problem. But there's people involved and people are sinful. Your workplace is not just the problem. The people there are and you're one of the people there. Churches aren't just bad as if the people in it are fine. But the church as an institution is a problem. No, churches are made up of people. We want the problem to be something abstract so that we don't have to deal with the fact that it's actually our problem. And we do the same thing with the answers to our problem. We think if only we had this new situation, this new relationship, if only we had this next job, if only we could move to a new location or get a raise, then finally we would be happy. But you can't find a new hope, a new situation, a new relationship. Do you know why? Because you're part of the problem. And if you go to a new location, you know who's going to follow you there? You. If you go to a new marriage, you know what you're going to find there? You. The least common denominator in all of your problems is you. And so because of your sin, you you make a problem there. So those things that you try to find hope and happiness and satisfaction, they'll never work. It's like the woman who says, I just want to find a man that will make me happy. And I pray for that man. 
Because a man is supposed to cherish and love his wife, but it's not up to a man to take on your happiness. That man can never live up to that. A wife can never live up to making her husband happy. That's not what you were meant to do. I've seen couples who have children that that they expect their children to make them happy. But we've also seen adults who spend their entire life still trying to make their parents happy. And it doesn't work well. Parents are never happy then and children end up rebelling. Why? Because they can't take the weight of that kind of pressure. No relationship, no job, no raise is ever going to give you the happiness that you seek. We've got to admit it. We've got to admit two things in this. We've got to admit, number one, that, that there's something wrong with us. That we've got to take a look in the mirror and understand that it's partially us. And, and we've got to also understand that there's nothing outside of us that we keep trying to find on this world that's ever going to answer those problems. In fact, I think that's what this text is trying to get at for Israel. Israel is going through so much pain and so much distress. And they see that as a sign that God has left them. But I think part of the message of Isaiah is, actually, that may be a sign that God is close to you. Because what God understands is that all those other things that you try to find your happiness and your hope and your satisfaction in, they're not going to give it to you. And so one of the things God's going to do is He's going to let you experience how all those other things aren't going to work out for you. He's going to understand. Because God loves you, He's going to let you sometimes feel the despair of all those other things that aren't going to get it done for you where only He is going to get it done. If you want to to experience this in the Bible, read Malachi chapter 4 sometime. It talks about all these different times that God keeps reaching out to Israel. and, And it says, but you will not return to me. But you wouldn't return to me. But you won't come back to me. Verse 12, the confession of these people continue. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, receiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. This is a confession that Isaiah is writing for the people, because the people need to confess these things. They need to to acknowledge that life is not working their way. We need to acknowledge that our marriages crumble under the weight that they cannot bear when they try to make each other happy. Children rebel because of the pressure that parents put on them. New jobs and new raises may be good for a little while, but eventually the grass is always greener somewhere else. Eventually you're going to want another raise. It never satisfies. One of my favorite Christmas stories is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I'm partial to the Muppets version, uh, and I really don't care for the Bill Murray version, but there's tons of versions out there. This is a story that gets remade all the time. Mickey Mouse has done it. Multiple actors have done the part of Scrooge from Christmas Carol. We all know the story. Scrooge is this bitter, penny-pinching, cruel man who is rough on his employees, cheap, only cares about money. He's visited by three ghosts, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. 
In the story, it's painful for him. Painful because he has to take a hard look at who he is. Who he was as a child, who he is now, and where he ends up in the future. In fact, in the, in the story, it doesn't always come through as well in the movies, but in the story, Scrooge multiple times pleads, don't show me anymore. No, I can't, I can't bear this. And so Scrooge goes through this, this night of pain, this night of torture, this night of despair. But he's changed in the end, isn't he? Seeing where he is, he comes out on the other side and, and he's a changed man. Understands this message of Christmas so much more. And we keep watching the movies. We keep reading the story of Scrooge. And we keep seeing the pain that he goes through to change, to, to really appreciate Christmas. But like Israel, we don't want to go through that same kind of journey, that same kind of pain, that same kind of despair, that same kind of, oh, I really don't want to look at myself anymore and understand where I'm really at. But if you really want to appreciate Christmas the way Scrooge does, then the the difficulty of the night before is part of the journey. Sometimes we need the despair because we need to stop trusting in things that are not going to help us the way God can. Now, if we stop there, this might be one of the most depressing sermons I've ever preached. But we're not stopping there because the text doesn't stop there. Now we're in verse 15 and and we change voice again. So we we, we got the, the comments about God and his complaints against Israel. We've got this confession that Isaiah writes of the people confessing where they are with God, now we move to God's response. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. A helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. And wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries. Repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west. And his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. I love verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgressions, declares the Lord. God doesn't just sit back. God doesn't just sit back. He hears this confession. In fact, he helped drive these people to confession. And he responds. Text says, with his own arm. God doesn't just just deal with it from a distance. With his own arm, with his own strength, he comes to deal with this. That phrase for the arm of the Lord is a phrase in the prophets that, that is used to describe the Messiah that's coming. That it's going to be God's own arm, that God's going to come and do something in this world. And so we see here this promise of the Messiah. This is the promise we celebrate at Christmas. That Jesus comes. And he offers two things when he comes. He offers grace. He offers salvation. But he also brings justice. 
He also brings a, a vengeance to the world. Where it has been wrong, He's going to make it right. We can be forgiven of sin, but He also has to deal with sin. See, if you really want to take back Christmas from our culture, if you really want to live into a, a vibrant and vital life, then you've you got to take a hard look at yourself. You've got to go on this journey that Israel goes through. You've got to go on the journey of Scrooge. You've got to understand that you need Jesus. Part of the challenge for us as Christians is, even though Jesus has come and paid that price, we still live in a world that's broken. See, what the prophets don't really talk about What the early Christians couldn't quite understand that we've had to deal with over time is that Christ's coming, this Redeemer action, actually happens in two parts. Jesus comes as a baby and lives a life and dies a death on the cross, raises from the dead, but then he leaves. And so we wait for this coming of Jesus later, that he's going to actually come and redeem everything and make all things right. That, That the work of Christ is now... This is how we say it in theology. Now and not yet. That it's already happened, but that there's something still to come. It's going to come in a different and new way now. Like the river is running now, but but eventually the current's going to get a lot stronger. And, And the problem for us as Christians is we live in this tension of now and not yet. That the Redeemer has come, but that He's coming back to finish the job someday. In the tension between these two, we have to keep reminding ourselves that we're sinners, that we're broken. That's why we do confession every Sunday in the bulletin. That's why we confess and we remember that we are forgiven because we keep needing to remember that. That I am a sinner, impure, missing the mark. I try to be liked or have more or be happier. And in the end, all those things fall apart. If we're going to take back Christmas, we've got to understand. If we're going to live in the now and not yet, we've got to go through the journey of Scrooge. The journey of the exiles. Because only in our desperation can we fully appreciate the Christian message. The Christmas message. That Christ has come as the arm of the Lord and the Redeemer. Christmas is only good news if you begin to realize how badly you need that baby in that manger. An unneeded Jesus is an underappreciated Jesus. But a desperately needed Jesus is a precious gift. So I pray for you this Christmas as nicely and gently as I can that you would have a little bit of despair this Advent. May everything that keeps you from Christ fail you and may you be especially blessed by the true message of Christmas that our Redeemer has come. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for just a little bit of despair this Advent. Take away from us, just as you did with the Israelites, those things that we turn to, those things that we grope for in the dark, that keep us from the full vital life we could have with you. Amen.